Thank you, Sarah, and thanks to our, our brass instrumentalists today. Uh, we will be adding uh, some instrumentalists uh, each, most Sunday mornings as we move forward here. Uh, so we appreciate them very much, and we appreciate Kenton for uh, planning our services and putting that together. Well, imagine that you had a good friend, and maybe even an extended family member, uh, who's lived his or her, her whole life in San Diego, California. Yeah, looks nice, doesn't it? Um, sunshine, palm trees, 75 to 80 degrees, pretty much every day, all year round. That sounds kind of boring, doesn't it, really? <laughs> then imagine it came to your house for a visit for the month of February. It's below zero for days at a time. It snows almost every day. There are 14 or 15 inches of snow on the ground. That's a picture of what my mailbox looked like two weeks ago. Uh, how long would it be before they ask you, so tell me again, why do you live here? And you would say, I have no idea. Right? But then if you thought about it a little bit more, thought a little more deeply about it, you might say something like, well, living here at least teaches me something about hope. You would say it's true that our winters can be bad, the snow and ice can build up, the wind can be face-numbingly cold, but we know that spring is coming. Sometime in March, or April, or June, the sun's going to come out, like it is today and maybe the next couple days, uh, and the snow's going to melt, and spring will come. And that gives us hope. You could say, in fact, that it's hope of springtime that gets us through the darkest and coldest days of winter. Today we begin a new series from the great letter, the book we call First Peter, called Living Hope. And this series is going to take us the next couple of weeks. We'll take a two-week break for Palm Sunday and Easter. Then we'll continue on through First Peter and then roll right into Second Peter. So whatever you're reading in your personal devotions, uh, just kind of put that aside and start reading through this letter, these two letters called First and Second Peter. So I'm going to jump right into our text today and give you some background kind of as we go through uh, the first part of this first chapter. So we're in First Peter chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, we're going to come back to that phrase in just a minute, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. I'm going to pause there. Uh, this is just the greeting portion of this letter. It's like when we say, you know, dear John. Okay, this is Peter's version of dear so-and-so. And there's a lot here. First, we see that the letter's written by Peter. Uh, this is the simple fisherman who Jesus called to leave his boats and nets and become a, a follower, a disciple. Same guy who jumped out of the boat a few months later and tried to walk across the water to Jesus and sank in until Jesus rescued him. The same guy who pulled out a sword in the Garden of Gethsemane and struck off the ear of a high priest's servant just because he wanted to defend his master. The same guy who denied three times in one night that he even knew who Jesus was. This is that same guy, Peter. And Peter introduces himself as apostle of Christ. An apostle. That word just means sent one. So Peter at this time in his life knows he's been sent by God into the world to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Christ. 
Now, Peter uh, became uh, one of the leaders in the early church in Jerusalem and then on into a, a place called Antioch and eventually, toward the end of his life, the leader of the church in Rome itself. And he's writing this letter, historians tell us, in roughly 60 to 62 A.D., <clears throat> roughly 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So for a little perspective, uh, I've now been at Chapel Street uh, as one of the pastors for 35 years. So that tells you the span of time. This is, it hasn't been a long time uh, since the whole, all the events happened. And then here is Peter at this point in his life. And he's right, likely writing this letter from Rome at a time when the Emperor Nero was in power and Nero was ramping up persecution of the Christians in Rome. There had been a fire in the great city, and many historians believe that Nero was responsible for actually starting the fire himself because he wanted to rebuild a portion of that city into his image, but he blamed the fire on this strange new group called the Christians, or the Way, and he labeled them as enemies of Rome, and then launched a campaign of terror to sort of justify himself that eventually led to the execution deaths of both St. Paul and St. Peter. In fact, it's possible that Paul had already been executed by the time Peter is writing this letter, and word is spreading throughout the churches that Paul had begun, that he's gone, and Peter might be writing this letter to encourage because they are hearing that news. And Peter is writing, he says, to the elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, what does that mean? Each word here is very, very significant. The word elect means God's chosen ones, those favored by God. Now, he's not talking about the Jewish people here who did think of themselves as God's chosen people and were called God's chosen people back in the Old Testament. Rather, he's referring to all those who have put their faith in Christ the elect, the favored by God. And that includes us here today. Exiles, the elect exiles. Now, exiles is a word that means sojourners, those who are sojourning in a strange land, sort of just traveling through. He's reminding his readers that followers of Christ are no longer citizens of this earthly world. Rather, we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. We belong to a different world, and so therefore are just sojourners traveling through this world. So we too are exiles in Peter's mind. There's a sense in which we are always going to be different because we serve a different king, we live for a different kingdom, we do not fully belong to this world. And then he says, of the dispersion. The Greek word there is diaspora, and it carries the meaning of seed that's scattered by a farmer all over his field in order to grow. So he's writing to followers of Jesus, both from Jewish and Gentile backgrounds, who've been scattered all over the ancient world, sometimes by hostility and persecution, sometimes by their own choice, but ultimately, he says, according to the foreknowledge of God, according to his divine purpose. Now take a look at this map. I want to show you just to orient you to what we're talking about. A little bit hard to see, but Jerusalem is all the way down to the southeast, the far, uh, the lower right-hand corner there. You see Palestine, Jerusalem. That's where everything began. Then you see all the way up to the northwest, very top left corner, you see Rome. That's where Peter is now. And the people he's writing to live in the middle in what we call modern-day Turkey. And you see all those areas up there, Bithynia, Galatia, uh, Cappadocia, Pontus, those are all the northern region of what we call Turkey. That's where Paul had planted churches, but that's where people have been scattered to. So those are the folks 
that uh, Peter is writing to and thinking about. And he said, all this is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And that tells us that we too are part of God's foreknowledge and plan. We too are uh, exiles scattered by the dispersion, seeds scattered by God, planted where we are in our culture here in North America, in our towns, in our neighborhoods, according to the purpose of God. We are exiles, aliens of the dispersion. So why is Peter even writing this letter? What's the occasion? What causes him to write these things? Well, he's writing to people who are facing hardship. We'll see this as we go throughout the letter. People who are facing hardship or soon will be facing hardship. Some of them are going to be persecuted. Some of them are going to be sent away from their cities. Some are going to lose their jobs. Some are going to be separated from their families. Some are going to be martyred eventually, as was Peter, as was Paul. And Peter is writing them to encourage them by reminding them of their hope. Now, we are reading these words far removed from the first century, far removed from the Roman Empire. We're not facing the same kind of persecution that Peter's talking about. But there still exists this kind of persecution in many parts of the world today. We don't know it here where we are, at least not now. But we do know what it is to face other kinds of hardship, other kinds of loss or discouragement or pain. So we too need to know the hope that is ours. So let's continue. Uh, ch chapter 1, verse 3. He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, I'm going to pause there at all our campuses this morning, all our services, and going forward as we go through 1 Peter, this is going to be our memory verse that we are going to challenge you and encourage you to, 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 to memorize. To say to yourself. So I want you to join me. Look at the screen and, uh, or look at your own Bible and we're going to say it together. Okay, you ready? Join me. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now it's always good to commit God's word to memory and to our hearts, but of all the verses you could know, and be ready to say to yourself anytime, this is right there at the top of the list. Born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, uh, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found the result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you have not seen him, uh, though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
Now, I want, uh, oh, let me keep reading. Verse 10. Considering this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not ser serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I wanted to keep that last portion in there because I wanted you to hear that last line. The things you've heard, the things that have been preached to you, are things upon which angels long to look. You, look, you know, we most often find ourselves wondering, we wonder about heaven. You know, what's, what's heaven like? What's it going to look like? Can we, we would love just to catch a glimpse of heaven. And Peter here turns it around. He says, no, no, no. It's the angels of heaven who are, who are wanting to catch a glimpse of what God is doing here, what God is doing with us and for us and in us. It's a powerful word. Angels long to see what God is doing here. The first thing we see in this passage is a living hope. I want to talk about our living hope. If I ask you uh, to identify, and it's kind of an unfair question because you're not thinking this way, but if I ask you to identify the four most hopeful words in the English language, what kind of phrase would you come up with? I mean, really hopeful four-word phrase. Would it be something like, dinner is almost ready? <laughs> four good words. Or, will you marry me? That's a good one. Or, the pandemic is over. If I could just announce that, or maybe the sermon's almost over. But all these are good, but here for me are four of the most hopeful words. Some of you will get this, some of you will not know what I'm talking about. Pitchers and catchers report. How many of you played baseball growing up? A few of you? Well, you understand this then. I'm kidding, of course, but those four words announce the beginning of baseball spring training, which means that baseball season is right around the corner. Now, baseball, as some of you know, has been part of our family life for a long, long time. Uh, last spring was the first spring in 25 years that uh, we didn't have at least one of our boys playing baseball at one level or another. In fact, uh, the other day I went outside, it, it was the first day that felt kind of like this. The, the cold had lifted, the sun was out, and it just struck me. Uh, so I texted one of my sons who loved baseball. I said, hey, I went outside today and I smelled baseball. And if you know what I'm, you, uh, the smell of a glove, the smell of a ball, the smell of a dirt, I smell baseball. He texted me right back and said, me too. He said, I went on my patio, and I just stood there, and that's what I, what I found myself thinking about. And he said, I would much rather be at spring training than sitting here at my desk looking at my computer. Isn't that true? Spring training is a season of hope uh, for players and fans alike. Every team, every player, every fan wonders if this might be the year. Will the Cubs win the World Series is what Cubs fans ask. And they say, I hope so. Will the White Sox win the World Series? And Sox fans say, I hope so. And this is hope, but it's what I would call ordinary hope. It's how we usually think about hope. It's hope as wishful thinking. We hope something will happen, but we have no guarantee that it actually will happen. It's a very common, the most common form of hope, but Peter's not talking about that kind of hope here. He's talking about a different kind of hope, a hope that he calls living hope. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, what does it mean to be born again into a living hope? If we go back to 
uh, conversation Jesus had in John chapter 3 with a man named Nicodemus. We read part of the story. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus there is talking about spiritual rebirth, obviously, moving from spiritual death to spiritual life. And it's not something we can do for ourselves. That's what Jesus is teaching Nicodemus. You can't be good enough. You can't keep the law enough to give birth to yourself, spiritually speaking. Just as we can't give birth to ourselves physically, we cannot achieve new birth spiritually by our own efforts. We are only reborn spiritually by the power and mercy of God. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So when we put our faith in Christ, we are born again. By his grace, by his authority, we receive New hearts through the forgiveness of sin. New identities being adopted into his great family. New purpose to live in and for the eternal kingdom of God. And new destiny to reign with him forever in the new heaven and new earth. And all these form what Peter calls living hope. He's caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now why does he call it living hope? The Greek word translated hope here uh, means an eager, confident expectation. It doesn't mean wishful thinking. It means a confident expectation. This hope is living because it's anchored, Peter says, in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Now, every time I do a graveside service uh, uh, for a family that, that needs hope, every time, I say the same thing. As we stand there next to an open hole in the ground in a beautiful place that we call cemeteries, places of remembrance, I say the same thing. I ask the family to remember the very first Easter morning in the story. And I say, remember what, what happened? The women went to the tomb of Jesus of Nazareth, expecting to anoint his body properly for burial, kind of like we are here in the cemetery. But when he got there, they're met by angels who asked them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. And ask them to remember that when they come there to remember their loved one, that loved one is not there. They're already with the Lord if their faith was in him. We have a living hope because the one in which we've placed our hope is risen and yet lives. See, at its heart, Christianity... The gospel is not about becoming a better person. Not at his heart. It's not about becoming the best version of yourself. We hear that a lot today in our culture, don't we? I just aspire to be the best version of me. And people think that's what the gospel's about. That somehow by going to church or, you know, by trying really hard, you can become the best. That's not what it's about. Christianity at its heart is about death and resurrection. We become the best version of ourselves only as a result of being born again into a new self. And that's the promise of the gospel. So Peter starts with living hope because he's writing to dear friends, the people who love Jesus, 
who have put their faith in him, but who are or will be soon experiencing great trials and even suffering. And he wants them to know their hope is secure. And more than that, he wants them to know their hope is living. Living hope. Secondly, we see in this passage an eternal hope. An eternal hope. A while back, uh, my wife and I spent some time uh, with an attorney uh, restructuring our will. And if you've ever done that, you know it's, a, it's not what you call exactly a joyful thing to do. It's kind of a somber task because the whole exercise is talking about deciding about who's going to get all your stuff, you know, when you check out, when you die. In our case, uh, aside from what we wanted to give to the ministries of Chapel Street, and by the way, uh, you may not be aware, because we haven't talked about it in a long time, but we established a kind of legacy fund at church here called the Chapel Street Fund for Local and Global Impact. It's kind of, a, it's kind of an endowment fund. It's, it's designed to receive estate gifts uh, to ensure the vision of Chapel Street's gospel ministry for generations in the future. Uh, if you want to uh, find more information about that, you can find it on the website. I'd be happy to direct you there a little bit too. And if you haven't thought about that with your estate planning, I'd encourage you to do that. Uh, aside from that, everything is going to go to our children, like it's true for most people. Our four sons are going to inherit our, the entirety of our earthly wealth and our possessions. But here's the thing. Uh, all of that, all of that we leave and all the documentation is going to eventually be spent, right? Or it's going to wind up in a landfill or a junkyard somewhere. All of it. Every last penny, every last thing we own. The greater question, I think, is this. Will they inherit anything from us? Will our children inherit anything from mom and dad that is lasting, that is eternal? Peter says, yeah, there is. There is something you can leave. Verse 4, into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through a faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Paul says here four things about our inheritance of faith. Four things about the inheritance of faith. First, it's imperishable. It means our hope is indestructible. It's not like that half gallon of milk in your refrigerator. It's got a little date stamped on it. If you don't pay attention, it'll go sour or it's, it has an expiration date. He says, your inheritance in Christ has no expiration date. It's eternal. He says it's undefiled, unstained by sin or evil, untouched. Picture your car after driving two or three months in the wintertime. And it's just cake, you know, with the salt and the stuff from the road. And you just desperately want to take it through a car wash, but they're closed because it's too cold to even have a car wash. Your car would come out like an ice cube. But your car gets stained by the world. Not so with our inheritance. It cannot be corrupted. It's undefiled. It's also unfading, he says, untouched by time itself. A couple of weeks ago for Valentine's Day, I uh, got some nice flowers for my wife, and hopefully a lot of you guys did that, but got some nice flowers for her. And they lasted longer than, than usually they last. They were in their vase, they lasted a couple of weeks, but eventually they, they wilted, they faded. Not so. Our inheritance is unfading, untouched by time. And finally, he says, fourthly, it's kept in heaven, guarded, kept secure, like treasure kept in a vault or a safety deposit box. Nothing can steal our hope away. 
Peter's saying that our living hope is anchored in the resurrection of Jesus and promises an inheritance that is death-proof, sin-proof, time-proof, guarded by God himself, and nothing can ever rob us of that hope. I wonder if you know that hope today. I hope you do. Do you know that hope? It's yours by faith. It's your inheritance when you've been born again. It's promised you. It's secure. Nothing can ever take it away. And when we think about what we might leave behind when we leave this earthly life, we can leave that which is perishable, that which fades, that which is going to be spent, used, thrown away, or we can leave that which is imperishable and eternal. The unfading hope of our faith It's either that or what we leave as a garage sale. Peter says our hope is living. Our hope is eternal. And thirdly, in this passage, he says we have an enduring hope. Enduring hope. Verse 6, And this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. I love that Peter includes this sentence in this letter, early in the letter. And he's here addressing the question that he knows is in the hearts and minds of his audience. For whatever they're going through, maybe they've heard that Paul is gone, executed by Nero. Maybe they've been receiving those threats themselves. And what they're asking is, what about suffering? What about suffering? What about when life goes sideways? What then? A long time ago, uh, years ago, Chris, I don't remember what year it was, but Chris and I traveled to Russia as part of a team that visited a sister church at that time, uh, Samara uh, Baptist Church, I mean, excuse me, Transfiguration Baptist Church in Samara, Russia. Um, and we had a wonderful visit there, incredible experience. I've told stories from this trip before, but I, I was asked to preach in their, in their church service uh, the first Sunday we were there. And I prepared something and all that, and right before the service started, they have, these, they have long, like two and a half, three hour services in Russia. But right before we were to go onto the platform in the church, the pastor uh, named Victor took me into this little room where all his elders were sitting. I didn't know what he was going to do. Church was getting ready to start. He takes me into this little room, and he wanted to introduce me to his elders. So I walk in, and there's a table with 10 or 12 older men, grizzled-looking, wrinkled faces, steely blue eyes, sitting around this table all looked like they were between 75 and 85 uh, years old. And Pastor Victor went around each one, one by one, and introduced me. And the way he did it was he told me the man's name and he told me what he had suffered for Christ in his life. Like little paragraphs. He'd say, Pastor Brian, this is Brother Vladimir. Vladimir spent 20 years in the Gulag prison camp because he loved Jesus. Pastor Brian, this is Brother Dimitri. Dimitri uh, lost his job uh, because he was known to be a Christian. This is Brother Boris. Boris, all his children were kicked out of their school and denied jobs because their father was a Christian. He went around each man, and each one had a story, each one more devastating and painful than the last. And I realized something in that moment is that every one of those dear men knew something that I did not know. They knew things about suffering that I did not know. They knew things about hope that I did not know. And I had the strongest sense in me, and I wanted to beg Victor to to let me off the hook because I had the strongest sense that it was they who needed to speak to me, not me to them. So what about 
when the Roman soldiers show up at your door? What about when your job is the one eliminated by COVID? What about when your biopsy or the biopsy of your loved one is positive? What then? Has something gone wrong with our faith? Has something gone wrong with God? Has he forgotten us? Does suffering mean God has abandoned us? Peter says, no, 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 no. He says, remember, I've already called you uh, elect exiles. You're just sojourners here. Now he openly acknowledges suffering and pain and grief is real. He acknowledges that even though uh, they are the elect of God, even though they have faith in the living Christ, their faith does not insulate them from pain. But that pain, that grief, those trials, he says, cannot touch their hope and cannot quench their joy. Rather, it's that hope that carries them through the trials, just as the hope of spring carries us through the darkness and cold of winter and results in joy. Verse 7, he says, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter uses an interesting image here. He compares our faith, our hope, to gold that is refined, purified by fire. He's saying that while our faith does not protect us from trials, but rather our trials serve to test and purify our faith, like gold, only even more valuable, because even gold eventually perishes. But our faith and our hope endure. And in verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I've had the chance to travel to many places in the world in my years here at Chapel Street, Russia being one of them. Um, but I've been, been able to have fellowship in, in worship services and preaching and prayer and just being with people uh, in many parts of the world, South America, uh, China, Africa, Turkey, Russia. And as I've had those experiences, I've noticed something. It took me several years to notice uh, what I'm going to tell you. And I started to notice that in these parts of the world where uh, life is hard, I mean, almost harder than we can begin to imagine, where, where, where there is much pain, or where there is much suffering, where it's real, I started to notice that in almost every prayer... In almost every sermon I heard, in almost every conversation with these believers around a dinner table, uh, there was eventually a mention of heaven, of the hope of heaven. I mean, much more so than we tend to talk about it here. And that was what I noticed, and I began to wonder why. Well, I think there are lots of reasons, but I think the main reason is that they have this living hope. They're more aware of their living hope. I think they know something that we don't quite know in the same way. I think they know that they have nowhere else to invest their hope. Living where we live, living how we live, living with our standard of living, we know we can invest our hope in all kinds of different things, can't we? We can hope that the economy finally gets going again. We can hope that doctors are going to give us a treatment plan and get, a, get us a vaccine and save us all. We can hope that the government's going to solve some of our societal problems for us. But in these places of the world, the people I'm talking about, they already know that all of that is just wishful thinking. They already know. 
So their hope is living because it's anchored in the one who rose from the dead, and it's living because their inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it's kept in heaven for them. That's what they know. And that hope is the source of their joy. And may it be ours as well. That's how Peter starts. I hope you'll stay with us through this entire series and start reading through 1 Peter on your own. Will you bow with me for prayer? Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for this ancient letter written to people who needed to be reminded of their living hope, people who were facing trials and pain, people who believed in you, who loved you, but could not see you. In other words, people just like us. So remind us of the greatness of our hope and remind us of the source of our joy. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.